So Mark chapter number two. I want you to imagine a young couple who is dating. It's the month of September and they're in school. And so they're uh, maybe going to college. And so they go to the park and they go study in the park. Or maybe they go to Starbucks and they're studying at Starbucks together. And so they go and have dates together and having a good time. But it's also in the middle of baseball season. And the guy is a, is a Dodgers fan. The Dodgers are doing a little better than he expected, maybe. Oh, wait, no, I shouldn't say that. He knew they were going to do really well. And then it goes in the month of October, and he's really excited. So he's watching ESPN a lot. He's watching the local news, sports news. He's on his phone. He's seeing the updates. He's definitely watching the games. He's following the stats, you know. He's wearing his blue Dodgers hat around town. He goes out to Costco, sees the, the Dodgers uh, picture frame right there. Did you see that? And he, he taps it for good luck, you know. And uh, maybe annoys her a little bit. He's a little consumed. You know, so they're at the park and he's checking his phone to see, you know, stats. Or they're at a restaurant and he's watching the TV to see, you know, what they're saying about the Dodgers, you know. Of course, the Dodgers have a disappointing ending. So he has about a week of depression. But then comes out of it and it's football season. And so he decides, though, for the month of November that he's going to remove sports from his life. Yeah, he thought, you know, I'm, just, I, I'm not going to do any sports. I'm not going to be on ESPN. I'm not going to watch the, the sports up there. I'm not going to, and Sunday afternoons, I'm going to not do that. And, and he's doing this for his girlfriend. He thought, you know, maybe this will help her. And there's a couple motivations he could have. One motivation could be fear. You know, she might be thinking, I don't know if I like being this guy. He's kind of consumed by sports, you know. And so he might think, I better show something that I show her that I'm actually serious about her and I love her more than sports. So he's like, I'm going to take the month of November off, okay? It could be that maybe he's, uh, he's motivated by the fear of peer pressure. Maybe he has uh, some of her girlfriends are like, I don't know if you like, this guy's a good guy, you know. He seems like he's pretty consumed with sports. And so he's going to show these girls that he's good enough for this girl. So he, maybe he even you know, has a selfie on Instagram where he says, you know, this is my last time to you know, watch sports, you know. So he wants everyone to know how dedicated he is to his girlfriend, right? So he's very motivated by that. Or it could be that he's actually motivated by love for her. Like he loves her and he says, you know what? I'm going to dedicate this month just spending time with you. Now, which do you think is probably the better motivation? And today we're going to look at what Jesus says about fasting and praying. It's interesting that a lot of people have a lot of different reasons why they fast or withhold something, go without something for a period of time, and pray. Some religions, some uh, religions fast because they want to get something from God or they're afraid that God will be angry with them if they don't. Some people fast and pray because they want everyone to see how spiritual they are. They kind of kind of promote themselves spiritually. They actually think maybe God likes them more if they do it. But Jesus here is going to tell us and show us today that Christians should fast and pray out of love and out of joy because Jesus is enjoyable. So if a Christian decides to go without for a period of time, it should be to, to focus his or her thoughts on God and concentrate their affections on Christ through prayer and scripture reading. So we're going to look today at Christ's view of praying and fasting. We saw in Mark chapter 1 here that Jesus had all authority, right? I mean, Mark clearly demonstrates in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Mark chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Jesus Christ had authority over demons and Satan. In fact, you look down in, in verse number 21, he casts out a demon. He shows, I have authority over that. If you look down in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 45, he shows he has power over sickness when he heals Peter's mother-in-law and the leper when he heals the leper and many other people he heals. And he demonstrates he has power over sin and sin's effects, right? Our world is cursed 
because of sin. There's suffering in this world because of sin, not because of necessarily the person's sin, although that's sometimes the case, but just by virtue of the fact that there's sin in our world, there is suffering taking place. And Jesus came as God in human flesh, and he demonstrated that he has authority over everything, even suffering and sin, and ultimately the suffering that sin brings, which is death. In fact, we saw in Mark chapter 2 last week that he had the ability to forgive sin, or at least he declared that. And then he demonstrated he had that ability by, in verse, you look at verse number 5, he says to the paralytic man, a man who was completely laying there, paralyzed, not able to move. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the, you see the teachers of the law, the religious leaders are there in verse number 6 and 7, and they're thinking to themselves, how can someone Talk like this. Verse 7, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, you're exactly right. Only God can forgive sins, and that's Jesus' point here. In fact, you go down to verse number 16. They're having, they have another question for him, and they say this one out loud to his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the religious leaders are opposing Jesus in these two events these two times of questioning. And then there's three more times of questioning where they oppose Jesus. In fact, we'll look at one of those today. And the next two, we'll look at those next week. So there's, in this chapter here, chapter 2, and then the first part of chapter 5, there's five encounters that begin an escalation of tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. In fact, look down in verse number 6 of Mark 3. Mark 3, 6, the conclusion of this This tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And the main conflict here that Jesus had with these leaders dealt with his authority. And the big slap in the face that they had happened in verse number 10 of chapter 2. Look down in verse number 10 of chapter 2. Jesus Declare that he can forgive sin because right, he's God in verse 10, but that you religious leaders and everyone else may know that the son of man, me, has the authority on earth as God, right? The authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So there's no question that Jesus was declaring himself to be the Lord who has authority over all. In fact, that was his call to people. Follow me. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah, right? So he goes to Levi. Look down in verse 14. He goes to Levi and he says, follow me. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm the Lord. Follow me. Leave behind your ways. And remember, he was a tax collector. So he was a known greedy man who was materialistic. He said, leave that theft and greed behind and go do what I say to do and, and, and live how I say to live. Follow the will of me as the Lord. And the great problem that all these people faced, these tax collectors, these sinners, these Pharisees, anyone that Jesus encountered, was really the great problem that we all face. And that is that we have another king who sits on the throne of our hearts. We have a powerful king who sits on the throne of our hearts called self. It's called me, right? For me, it's, his name is Ben. Every person who encountered Jesus, in fact, every person in our world today faces the same problem. Self is his or her Lord of the inner will and the mind. In fact, it's funny, you look at a toddler like a three or four-year-old, that's probably my favorite age to go teach a class. If I was going to be doing something right now teaching, I would love to teach that class, you know, because those children are 100% whatever they feel, right? If they're afraid, I mean, you can tell they're afraid. If they're happy, they're super happy, right? If they are selfish, everyone in Target knows, right? <laughs> Even if they're the pastor's kid. And then the whole church knows. No, just kidding. But when, when self rules your heart, then you respond in a way that is sinful. Self rules our heart. Self is also propped up 
by many different thrones. In fact, I did this little crude drawing for you. I don't know if it's too childish or not, but, but two hearts up here on the left is the heart of every person that enters into this world. Sometimes self is propped up on thrones, like thrones, the throne of addiction. So addictions promise that, that self, you can have control, right, of the problems in your life. Just take this substance, drink this. But it's a lie, right? Because you're actually then under the power of that addiction. Or sometimes self is propped up on the throne of materialism. The pleasures of this world promise that you can have peace and contentment. If you can just have this thing, right? I mean, you live in Simi Valley. You can't have a house. It's too expensive. If you had it, you'd be happy. Listen, I owned a house once. It didn't make me happy. Right? For a short time, maybe. And then I was thinking, man, sure would be nice to have a bigger house. Which I had a pool in my house. Right? And so the, the point is, is that those things... Leave you empty and wanting more. Sometimes people prop up self on the throne of atheism. The belief that God doesn't exist or agnosticism. The belief that you can't know if God exists. And the idea is that 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 belief allows self to have no authority. And I can rule my life however I want. Sometimes self is propped up on the throne of religion. And religion promises you that your guilt can be removed when you follow these external traditions and rituals. Religion promises that self will feel better if you just follow these practices. God will like you more. People will like you more. Think better of you. Self, religion promises that self can gain more status and maybe make you feel not as bad as you think you might be. Or maybe at least you'll look better than other people. Naturally, that's what we find in our passage today. We find religious leaders who were the lords of their own hearts and lives. And their religion propped their hearts and their self-rule up. Their religious throne was a hodgepodge of Old Testament Judaism, rabbinic tradition, and religious rules and cultural norms. And all of these elements formed their idea of how they could be pleasing to God and how maybe they could get other people to think they were important people. And Jesus called these people, not just the religious leaders, but everyone to repent from that idea. To turn from self-rule to follow him as the king. Not the king that's going to take over Rome and set up a new government, but the king that will rule your heart and your life. Jesus wanted to rule their hearts. He wanted to rule their marriages. He wanted to rule their parenting. He wanted to rule how their work ethic, what they, the decisions they made, their friendships. He wanted to rule their lives. And Jesus clearly established that he has the right and the authority to rule everything. And that includes a person's own heart. So starting in verse 18, going down to chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus contrasts self-centered religious rule, the rule of the Pharisees, with the life of one who allows Jesus to rule. As his Lord and King. So let's read Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Would you stand with me? We'll read this. As I read aloud, you'll follow along with me. Reading this together. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees, and the disciples of the Pharisees, fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, 
Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you will take the truth of your word. We pray that you'll apply it to our hearts and life. We need faith. We need belief. Not in man's ideas, not in our own ideas, but in the truth of your word. So I pray for every person listening to my voice right now. Father, will you help them to understand and then follow you by faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We will see in our passage this morning the contrast of two rulers, the ruling of self or the ruler of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just going to look at verses 18 through 22 this morning. But notice the contrast of two lords. When self is Lord of your life, your prayers are empty and self Serving. Look down in verse number 18. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to Jesus, Him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we meet in verse 18 a group of, of John's disciples. Now you might be surprised to meet them because you might think, Well, didn't John tell his disciples to follow Jesus? Well, you'd be absolutely right. John chapter 1, verse 29, the day after Jesus was baptized, he pointed to, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist clearly directed his disciples to to follow Jesus. Jesus. But somehow, some did not get the message. Now you might think, well, how did that happen? Well, remember there was people from all across Judea and Jerusalem coming out. There was, there was a huge, large number of people coming out to hear John the Baptist. And so surely all these people didn't get that message. In fact, Luke, the historian writes in Acts 19, that there were a group of people that Paul met in Ephesus that were followers of John the Baptist. So this is what, 30 years after John the Baptist has died and they don't even know about the Messiah coming. So there were people, obviously John the Baptist's disciples spread around and did not know. Some did not know about Jesus. So that was probably the case happening right here as well. And also we see the Pharisees. The Pharisees were one of five religious uh, and political groups in Israel. So there were the Sadducees. You hear about them in the New Testament here. And the Essians, the Zealots, and the Herodians. But the most common one we come across is, and the one we like to kind of pick on a lot, are the Pharisees, right? Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees, actually, their, their form of, Judea, Judea, um, of, of Judaism started 100 years before Jesus Christ came into the world. And on, in 70 AD, uh, when the temple was destroyed, they were the only really religious and political group that survived, in fact, actually, today, Orthodox Judaism is based upon a lot of the traditions of the Pharisees. The second and third centuries after Jesus and after the temple was destroyed, what survived of Judaism was the Pharisaical type of um, traditions and, and laws. And so a lot of that today we see is from that. The word Pharisee means separated or holy one, which sounds like a good thing, right? I mean, they want to be separated, want to be holy, but their idea of being holy was by keeping a list of rules. Their kind of idea was that if they added rules to the rules of God's word, then they'd be more holy and maybe even safe from, from breaking God's laws. So the idea is you kind of have a bunch of rules that pre- prevent you from breaking God's rules. And so you can definitely be uh, prevented from not being holy, right? You can be more of a holy person. A lot of their rules came from something known as the Talmud. 
And they actually, this was uh, based upon a lot of oral traditions that took place or that was passed on to the Jewish people before uh, Christ came to the world. So about three centuries there before Christ came to the, um, to the earth there when they were in the exiles. And someone wrote those rules down. And there is, there's hundreds and thousands of rules that, that are in that Talmud there. And they actually uh, put that Talmud uh, as the same authority as God's word. So they had their idea of their, their rules, and God's rules were kind of the, the same equal authority as well. And they thought that if they kept these rules, and they enforced these rules on other people, then Israel would be more holy, and they would be more holy, which is just really a, a form of legalism. The idea is that if I do certain things, that God is happier with me and likes me more, which is actually anti-gospel. One of the regulations dealt with fasting and praying. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there's only one time when Israel was required to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. Any other fasts that took place were voluntary. And so the Pharisees took this idea of fasting, and they decided that they were going to put a lot of restrictions on it. They were going to add a lot of externalism to it, and they were going to have it be a lot more than just once a year. And sometimes people fast in our society, don't they? And we, different religions do that. In fact, some people do it for scientific and maybe health reasons. I read a scientific journal that said if you fast, then it actually can help your cognitive abilities. It actually can help your metabolism. So some people do it for that reason. Is that why we fast? To lose weight? Well, you can do that if you want, but it's not going to mean anything to God, okay? That's not biblical necessarily fasting. You can do it. It's not wrong. But the idea of biblical fasting is that you withhold something for a period of time in order to focus your thoughts on God and your affections upon him through prayer and scripture reading. But the Pharisees, they took this idea of fasting. They made it into a legalistic form of of religious externalism, and they required a lot more fast. One of the things they did was they required each other and they tried to impose this upon Israel as well, to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. In fact, if you want to, go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. So that's your mark right now. It's the next book over, Luke chapter 18. I'll also put it up on the screen up here. But Jesus tells a story. It's a made-up story. But it's probably based upon what people saw on a regular basis. It's a story of a Pharisee who fasted and prayed. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this story for a point. But in verse 10, the Bible says two men, Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So you have two people, a guy who is religious and a man who is clearly a public known sinner. In verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself, he was separated from everyone else, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Sounds like I have practice at this, don't I? Like extortioners, the unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, likely these these Pharisees weren't actually, you know, pointing out people like that. Maybe they were. But the idea of what was happening would not have been foreign to the people that of the Jewish people of that time, right? They would have seen these Pharisees, and these Pharisees externally wanted to show their devotion to God. And their fasting showed their fake piety and their superficial devotion. It's kind of like the guy that posts on Instagram that he's going to withhold sports from this for this month. He's going to take a fast from sports, sports so he can focus on his girlfriend, you know? And so he puts it on Instagram and shares it with people so everyone knows. Hey, do you know what I'm doing this month? You know, it's like, that's what they were doing. It's kind of like, hey, I'm fasting for the Lord. Do you guys get that over there? Not eating the whole day, you know, (laughs) and oh, my stomach hurts here, but it's for Jesus. Or actually, they would say for Jehovah, right? And the idea here is that they did it to promote themselves. Let me ask you this question. Who were these Pharisees worshiping? Themselves, right? Self was on the throne. Their religion and even their reference to God were just religious props to enthrone self as the Lord of their life. I'm not as bad as other people. 
Like, that's the idea that false religion gives, where I compare myself with someone else, and I feel better about myself because I'm not as bad as that person, right? Look what I do. I fast. I give money to the poor. Oh, the pride and the arrogance behind that. Worship me. I'm awesome. I'm religious. But then notice the tax collector. Here is a a known extortioner in verse 13. The tax collector standing afar off, not from people, but in humility, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the attitude and the humility of this man. He tore away all his religious props and pride. And he said, God, you know who I am. I am a sinful man. God, show me mercy. And what does verse 14 says? Say, Jesus concluded this lesson with, I tell you, this man went down to his house, declared righteous, justified rather than the other. What did self rule? propped up on the throne of religion, give the Pharisee nothing but emptiness and rejection from God. What did the Lord's rule firmly founded on the throne of grace, mercy, and truth give this sinner who was declared righteous. And the praying and the fasting of the Pharisees were done to establish their spiritual status before God. And I think probably many genuinely thought God liked them more because of that. Like, I think they genuinely thought that this meant something to God, but it didn't. Their prayers were empty, full of pride. And when self, when self rules our hearts, that's what our prayers are like as well. Jesus Jesus' disciples were criticized. Why don't they fast and pray like we do or like the Pharisees do, the spiritual people, right? And so Jesus gives three parables here. And all three of these parables have these points right here. So I'm going to tell, go through these parables, but let me get, give you the point first. Jesus' point in these parables is this. The rule of Jesus as Lord is better than the rule of self propped up by religion. The rule of Jesus as Lord is better than the rule of self propped up by religion. And their religious prayers and fasting were just antiquated and corrupt. But the presence and the authority of Jesus brings joy. The presence and the authority of Jesus brings joy. So the disciples in verse 19 are enjoying the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. So in that culture, the bride was the person, or or I should say in our culture, the bride is the one celebrated at the wedding, right? I mean, she's the one who plans the wedding. Well, maybe the mother does, but she's a part of it somehow. She's the one that walks in the back door and everyone stands up, you know, but actually it was opposite. In the Jewish culture, the groom was the one who was celebrated. The groom was the one who initiated, planned, and hosted the wedding. In fact, the wedding couldn't take place until the the groom showed up. In fact, actually what he would be doing is he would be preparing his home and getting his affairs in order. And then he would come and announce the wedding. That's why Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's our groom and we are the bride, the church here. So everyone celebrated the arrival of the groom, especially the new bride. And their wedding feast took place for seven days. In fact, the Pharisees had some rules that basically uh, negated some of their rules during the feast. So if you had to fast during the feast or during the wedding, you didn't have to because, you know, they had rules that countered the other rules. Which is interesting that they can make their own rules up, right? don't you love weddings? Aren't they a lot of fun? If you're a woman in here, you're like, oh yeah. You know, if you're a guy in here, like, yeah, it's, it's okay. Right. I was talking to Tommy. He's one of our EBC students. And he went to a wedding a couple weeks ago, going to another wedding. You know, if you're one of those guys that stand up in weddings, it's expensive. 
right? But why do you do it, right? You're celebrating the bride and the groom, right? And if you're a, a father of daughters in here, it's expensive, right? And all father or daughter said, oh my, <laughs> it is expensive. And, but why do you do it, right? You're, you're having a great celebration for their wedding. And when you go to a wedding, nobody goes in there and talks about how bad their marriage is, right? You don't go up and get a picture of the bride and groom and say, man, our marriage has been terrible. I hope you have a good one, right? Nobody does that. Like nobody says, hey, you know what? 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Hope it's a good one for you. That's not very nice. No, we're all having a celebration. We're enjoying the wedding, right? And Jesus is saying, listen, the, the disciples and then us as the church, we are, we are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. When, when the groom was with the disciples, you rejoice, you celebrate, you have a party. Wasn't it time for the disciples to fast because they are with the, the groom? And why were they enjoying being with Jesus and not fasting? You know why? Because Jesus, he's enjoyable. Jesus is joy. The month of November and December, we'll all probably gain about 10 pounds, right? Why is that? We love food, right? And sugar. Some people love sugar a little too much this past week when they stole their kids' candy, right? And, and we desire and love sugar or candy and food, so we, so we gain weight, right? That's why we eat it. But our inner affections and our soul thirst. For the joy of God. We thirst for God. And God created us to bring glory to him and to enjoy him, right? To enjoy him forever. I mean, consider Adam and Eve in the garden. God created this world perfect. And he created Adam and Eve to enjoy his creation, but ultimately to enjoy him. Right? He wanted them to enjoy him. And when sin came into this world, it corrupted this world. It corrupted their hearts. And they lacked the joy that they longed for. Verse 16 of, or I should say, uh, Psalm 16, chapter 11, verse 11. The Bible says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, God created us to desire joy. Joy is found in his presence. And that's why your salvation when the Lord saves you and adopts you into his family, your salvation restores the joy within you. And eternity will be about enjoying God and his goodness. All of us face difficulties, don't we? I, I look out here and I see people, some are going through cancer. Some are suffering with other disabilities. Some have friends and family who have a loss of someone else. It's interesting, as I talk to many of you out here about things that are going on in your life, that people are telling me about their sufferings with a smile on their face, right? Claire showed me a post from that girl who had her had baby pass away two months ago. And it was like, you read this post and this lady, it's sad, but she's full of hope and joy. Like, how is that possible? In fact, James tells us we're to count it all joy when we meet various trials. How is that possible? Because we believe God is with us, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us and he's the ruler. We believe he's the ruler. He's at work within us. And we long for the day that we can experience the joy of eternity. In fact, Paul was in prison he was locked up for the gospel. And he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Where was Paul's joy found? Was it in the prison cell? No, it was in what? Rejoice in the Lord. Joy is central to the Christian experience. Because joy is found in the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus sits on the throne of your heart, when he rules your, your life in your heart, peace is restored and joy overflows. So, should we pray and fast? 
Like if we have joy through Jesus, we pray and fast. Well, look at verse 20 of Mark. Go back to Mark if you're not there already. Mark chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is saying there actually is a day that as Christians, you will, disciples, you will fast again. Jesus was pointing to the day that he would be taken from this earth. So he was living a perfect life, then he was going to die, and then he resurrected and he went back to heaven. In fact, listen to this in John chapter 16. This is Jesus the day, the night before he died. This is what he told his disciples. But because I have said these things that I'm going away, so I'm going to leave you. Sorrow has filled your hearts. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So who is the helper? It's the Holy Spirit. And do you realize the presence of the Holy Spirit allows each believer to experience the abiding presence of Jesus? So we can have joy still, even though Jesus is physically in heaven, we can have joy because we have the Holy Spirit. And so we have the abiding presence of Jesus. So it is our heart's desire, Ephesians 5.18, not to be controlled by wine and a substance or by another idol, but we want to be controlled by what? The Holy Spirit, who? The Holy Spirit, right? So we want the Holy Spirit to, to rule our hearts and allow Jesus to rule our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why Jesus says in verse 20, a couple of verses later in John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you'll lament when I die, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but then your sorrow will turn to joy. And that's exactly what happened. These men and then women went across the world, suffering, yes, but with great joy in their hearts because they knew that Jesus was present with them. So the question before us then is, should we in here be praying? Well, absolutely, we should be praying. Should we be fasting as well, fasting and praying? The answer is yes, but our our fasting, our praying is different than that of the Pharisees and, and other religions, right? In fact, I'll show this on the screen as well. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you fast, not if you flat, fast, but when you do. So in other words, you are going to fast. You should have times where you're coming before the Lord, withholding things and focusing on him. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, for they have disfigured their faces. Why? that their fasting may be seen by others. He says, truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. I mean, their fasting and praying was self-serving. But verse 17 says, but when you fast, so if, if you, if Christ is sitting on the throne of your heart, what should it look like when you fast and pray? Anoint your head with oil, wash your face. In other words, not to be seen by people, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. In other words, you're praying, you're fasting is about communing with God, communing with God, with enjoy. And so there's times where you come before God and you cry. There's times where you come before him and you mourn and you, and, and you are suffering, right? But we're not doing it to get something from God. We're not doing it because we hope God will like us more. Like we don't, we don't go before God and, and pray and fast, hoping, hoping that if, if we suffer a little bit, that maybe God will approve us and answer our prayer. That's not why we're doing it. But we're going to have times when we cry and we mourn. But then our crying and our mourning turns into joy because we spend time with the Lord. We pray and we fast because we love God. We know he's in charge. We know he loves us. And we want to experience the joy of God in a fuller way. I read an article this past week, I think explains it well. So if I can just read this from David Mathis, he wrote this. He said, I want you to see fasting for the joy it can bring as a means of God's grace to strengthen and sharpen your inward affections. See it as a powerful tool for enriching our enjoyment of Jesus. Fasting is an exceptional measure designed to channel and express our desire for God and our holy discontentment with this fallen world. What makes fasting such a gift is its ability, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to focus our feelings 
and their expression toward God in prayer. Fasting walks arm in arm with prayer. He quotes John Piper. John Piper says, fasting is the hungry handmaiden of prayer that, that reveals and remedies. Fasting, like the gospel, isn't for the self-sufficient. It's for the poor in spirit. And fasting, says Piper, is the physical exclamation point at the end of a sentence that says, this God is how much I, like, I want you. The idea is, is that we go to fasting to enjoy God in a fuller and a deeper way. We pray and we fast. And church, let me encourage us in here to consider this. Maybe that's something you've never done before. Maybe you've never fasted before. Hopefully you're praying, right? You should be praying always. You can pray and not fast, but fasting goes hand in hand with, with praying. And let me encourage you to consider what is something I could give up or, or, or uh, not do to concentrate my mind, my faith upon pouring my heart out to the Lord and experiencing his presence and, and submission to him. And I guarantee you that if you come to the Lord in prayer, and if maybe you withhold something and, and use that to concentrate your mind on, on feasting on God, that you will experience joy and your affections for him will grow. And as Christians, we don't pray and we say, God, will you, will you please love me more? Right? We don't pray hoping that if I don't eat, that, that God will maybe answer my prayer this day. Like that's called a diet with conditions, right? That's not why we pray and fast. But we pray to focus our mind on the feast of Jesus, the bread of life. And so to support, G, to support his, uh, what, he's, what he's trying to say here, Jesus in verse 21 gives another illustration. He says, no one, look at verse 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And if he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. As Americans, we don't patch things up, do we? Right? If we get a rip in our clothes, what do we do? We throw it away. There was a day when people patched things. It's, has anyone in here ever patched a piece of clothing before? Raise your hand. Okay. So there you go. Some people in here. I should probably ask if you did it for the purpose of actually wearing it and not for a costume or something like that. But whatever. You get the idea is that we don't really get this concept really well. In fact, there used to be a day when you only had a, a couple pieces of clothes and you actually wore those clothes until they completely wore out, right? Well, our society and actually now the world... Uh, is even come to this where they just wear something and they don't like it anymore. If it rips, they just throw it away. But the idea here that Jesus uses this illustration was one they were all familiar with because they didn't have, you know, 50,000 pieces of clothing in their closet, right? They had two. <laughs> and so the idea that, of this illustration here is that when you have an old garment and it gets a rip in it and you want to fix the tear, you don't get a new piece of cloth that is unshrunk and, and, and sew it on the old one because then when you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and then it's going to rip the, and you're going to have a worse problem you had before, right? The old garment here Jesus is referring to is the, the Pharisees' empty, self-serving approach to God. So Jesus was trying to make his point clear to them that he was not coming into this world to add to their self-centered religious system. Like, he's the, new, he's, he's the new patch, but he's not the new patch on the old garment. In fact, actually, he's not even the new patch. He's the entire garment, right? He's just saying, throw away the old garment of how you approach God in prayer. And actually, I am here to present something new, and that is faith in me. He is the Lord. He was not coming to add something. He was not coming to add something to, to their, their, their rule of self. It's not like you can have Jesus... Ruin your heart and self at the same time. There can't be two rulers. And he's saying, I'm kicking out the old ruler and I'm here to come and rule your life. And then in verse 22, he gives another illustration. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. 
But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in ancient Israel, when, when wine was stored, it was stored into goatskin. So they would get a new goatskin, and they would sew it up, and they would take new wine and put it into that goatskin. And the idea there was that the new skin was able to contract and it was elastic, so it could expand as the new wine fermented and the gas was released. But if you had an old wine skin that had hardened, you wouldn't put new wine in there because when the gas was released, and it would break it, right? And Jesus is saying, I'm the new wine. And he, as God with the divine authority, says, I am incompatible with your old wine skins. You have to throw your old religion, your old approach to God away. And Jesus' point here is, I'm not an add-on. Like, I am the Lord himself. So your ideas, other men's ideas of how they approach God are worthless and empty. Come to me as the Lord. He's saying, repent from that way of thinking and follow me as the king. See, many people add Jesus on, right? In fact, just, I mean, list some different religions. Islam views Jesus as just a prophet, but he's not the God man who died and rose again. So he's just, he's just a prophet like other prophets. He's kind of added on there. Gandhi was an influential leader of Hinduism. And he said that Jesus was a great ethical symbol. Well, he's not just an ethical symbol. How about this one? Many moral Americans, if you ask them, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, he was a great teacher. So they kind of add him on as another teacher in this world that teaches moral things. But let's think about this. If someone, as a teacher, declared themselves to be God, would they be a very good teacher? Like, they're either crazy or they're God. So you can't just just be a moral teacher. And also many American Christians use Jesus as just a ticket to heaven. Like, he's the way I'm getting to heaven, but I'm going to live my life however I want to. Well, that's not the gospel. In fact, Matthew chapter 7 is pretty clear that they're going to be surprised that they can't cash that ticket in. They won't be with God forever. Jesus is not just a prophet or just a good teacher or just an ethical symbol or a ticket to heaven. He is the Lord. He is God above all gods. And Jesus' call for you is to throw out your empty, self-serving religion and way of life. Jesus' call is to dethrone self and to enthrone him as your Lord. And friend, is Jesus the Lord of your heart? Can you honestly say Jesus is in charge of my marriage, of my parenting, of my thought life, of my heart? Prayer actually is a great revealer of where your heart truly is. Because if you're in here today and you don't pray at all, like, then who is on your throne? It's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, when you have a problem, you call up all your friends, or you put it on social media, but you don't ever call up Jesus, right? You don't ever see what he has to say in his word and come to find the comfort of truth. So if you're not going to Jesus in prayer, then who is on the throne of your heart? And maybe you're in here and you do pray. Like, I pray. But your prayers are just add-ons, right? I pray before I eat. (laughs) We had a meeting last week, so we prayed at the beginning of our meeting. Right? So Jesus is a part of my life. When I get up in the morning, I say a prayer. Right? But Jesus just a slap onto the front of your day. Right? Throughout the rest of your day. There's no faith. Jesus had just poured into the old wineskins of your selfish life. Or maybe you pray in pride. Lord, give me this. Give me that. I'm going to give me, give me brat. <laughs> right? And friend, if you're in here today, and Jesus is not the Lord of your life, you submit to him today. How do we submit to him? In prayer. Lord, This is who I truly am. Mourn and cry over how far you've fallen short of God's glory and perfection.
and trust in Jesus who offers forgiveness and grace and mercy. And then live joyfully in faith for the one who rules your life. Jesus made you, friend, to be a person who has joy. And let me tell you, when Jesus rules your life, there's peace and there's joy because you know the God of the universe. Church, if Jesus is on the throne of your life, pray to him, right? Set aside focused times to put your affections upon him and upon his truth. And maybe for some of us, it's just as basic as when you have time of prayer in the morning, you take your phone and you put it in the other room, right? (laughs) You abstain from seeing your phone for a half hour, right? Maybe for some of us, we say, you know, maybe this week, I I need to take a fast from media or or food to help me concentrate my mind and my heart on the Lord. In fact, I would just say in our society, if you're a teenager in here or a young person in here, maybe you've never gone without having media just always flashing in front of your mind. It might be good for you to take a day or maybe longer and say, I'm going to withhold from doing this so that I can focus more upon the word of God and upon praying to God. Fasting and praying is a joyful endeavor because joy is found in the presence of and under the authority of Jesus Christ himself. When, when self is Lord of your life, prayer is empty and self-serving. When Jesus is Lord of your life, prayer is joyful. Whoever calls upon the name of what? The Lord shall be saved. If you're a person in here and you are not, Jesus is not the ruler of your heart. All you have to do is call on him. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. You're in charge. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful. Jesus, we're so thankful that you clearly established the truth that you are the king above all kings. And you demonstrated that when you died on that cross and you defeated sin, you defeated Satan, and then you victoriously rose again so we could have new life. And I pray for every person that's listening to my voice right now. Help them to examine their hearts Are they truly individuals who are submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Father, if they've never come to you by faith, I pray today will be the day of their salvation. I pray for our church. May we be a church of faith who truly comes to you and is is not lured away by the enticement of this world, by the love for things and pleasure, just viewing our temporal world and nothing else, may we look and long for eternity in the everlasting joy of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.